Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Robin Dunbar. Robin Dunbar is a professor, an evolutionary psychologist, and the author of many books, including Friends, Understanding the Power of Our Most Important Relationships. During our conversation, Robin talks about how and why he became interested in evolutionary psychology, what evolutionary psychology is, and its explanatory power. He also talks about human social dynamics and our, quote, circles of friendship, end quote. These concentric circles include the universal findings of how, on average, humans numerically structure their social lives. Intimate friends, 1.5. Close friends, 5. Best friends, 15. Good friends, 50. Friends, 150. Acquaintances, 500. And known names, 1,500. Dunbar's number of 150 is really just one of these tiers. Finally, Robin discusses why humans have friends, the seven pillars of friendship, how people vet others for their appropriate tier early in friendship, and the loneliness people often experience when their inner circles are not robust and strong. The health and endorphin benefits of real friends, Robin notes, is often better than any therapy or medicine and is free to all. I love talking to this fascinating, friendly, and funny scholar, and hope to have him back on the show not too far down the road. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Robin Dunbar. Robin Dunbar, it is wonderful to meet you, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, welcome. I can't wait to have the conversation. Thank you very much for inviting me. Good to be here. Likewise. I would love to start in getting a little bit of the background story of what got you into evolutionary psychology in the first place. I read on your Wikipedia page this morning that you said once it was only at the age of about 40 that you had your first real job. And <laughs> with the meandering mind and curiosity that you obviously have, I wanted to learn what what it was about evolutionary psychology that really gravitated, uh, made you gravitate towards it or interested you in general. I'd like to know who writes my Wikipedia page. <laughs> One of these days, I actually must read it. <laughs> uh, uh, I have been known to say this, that uh, my first job was, at, proper job was at the age of one. That's to say that my first proper job, uh, according to my father, because <laughs> that meant a, a permanent job with a pension. <laughs> um, prior to that, I just had a long string of uh, postdoc and research fellowships, which were short term, and you bounced along from one uh, unemployment uh, period to the next unemployment period, these brief periods of paid employment in between. Anyway, <laughs> so, so this is a very long and winding road, really. Um, I, I, I suppose it, it, it came about because of where I did my PhD and the PhD group that I was part of, which was really the kind of one of the big, what were then called socioecology groups in in uh, Britain, 
probably one of the leading groups anywhere. Um, so I was introduced as a psychologist. I was probably the only psychologist in the entire group. All the rest were zoologists. I was introduced to zoological and biological and evolutionary ideas, um, which I sort of married up with my psychologist interests. Um, and so we we sort of trundled along for a very long time. I have to remember this is the t- the period when uh, sociobiology, the book, and mm-hmm. um, uh, the selfish gene burst upon the scene and and shook everybody up and and turned them head over heels and and reconstituted them mm-hmm. or reconstituted their minds <laughs> in a different way. Uh, so it was a very exciting time uh, to be involved. But I was uh, you know worked on. Uh, uh, monkeys in Africa. I didn't work yeah. on humans at all. Um, and I, I am well, monkeys and antelope actually it gets worse. Uh, we're going downhill, if you like. Um, <clears throat> and probably, you know, just we're talking about the early 70s here. So from the early 70s right the way through to the early 90s, I um, really worked on, on animal behavior, animal ecology, evolutionary ecology animals in the wild and it wasn't until i got my first proper permanent job <laughs> at the age of 40 that um uh i i hit a period where there was absolutely no money for this kind of field work of about two people who were getting any of it and and if they applied for a grant nobody else got one mm. that was that was it you know so was, this was looking pretty bleak so i just decided to do the kinds of things we did with animals observationally on humans in the street, because we can ask the same kind of questions. And that sort of started to get me interested in humans. Hmm. And um, it was, this was sort of really about the time that evolutionary psychology stroke evolutionary anthropology was seriously beginning to take off. So I, I kind of picked that particular ball up and ran with it at the same time, because um, it was, you know, sort of, a useful guideline to working on humans. So, so yes, I've my career entire fifty year research career has been divided into two twenty five year periods. One working exclusively on animals, and the other working mainly on humans. Not entirely all the time on humans, but hmm. mainly. You called that time a very exciting time, and I have to imagine some of the ideas that you were beginning to get exposed to in what sounds like the early 70s or so must have excited you as well. What was exciting about that framework, that theory? What what about it resonated with you and made you excited to spend so much of your life devoted to it? Oh, it was really just a rethinking of how evolutionary argument should be structured as much as anything. So this was, if you like, the selfish gene approach that and prior to that been a long period of interest, particularly in the context of primate field studies going back into the 50s, if not before, uh, of being interested in why different species had different kinds of social systems and different kinds of social arrangements. And I suppose this sort of partly came out of the anthropology world a little bit, because obviously the anthropologists for a previous century had been studying tribes all over the um, the world and, and, and had been asking questions about why different um, uh, 
tribes should should have different ways of doing things, different cultures, different social systems. Uh, and there'd been a move in the 1950s, in fact, in the department that I joined for my first proper job in, <laughs> in 1988. Um, yeah, that's to say the anthropology department at University College London by Daryl Ford, the great um, American uh, cultural anthropologist who, who had had the idea of looking at different human societies in the context of their ecologies. Could we explain differences between uh, different cultural groups, different tribal societies as a function of their ecology? So there's a lot of interest in that spinning around and, and the kind of people studying birds and mammals in general started to do the same kind of thing. So I guess where I did my PhD in Bristol was one of the leading places interested in applying these ideas to well, both birds and mammals, and particularly to primates, mm. um, which is sort of why I ended up there. So, um, you know, this was a very kind of formative period building on this background. Right? And then along comes the so-called selfish gene revolution, which says actually, you know, we need to get the evolutionary processes of the argument right here. Mm. Um, the way evolutionary processes work is for the benefit, if you like, of genes rather than the benefit of groups. Um, and so this was a very kind of exciting time because everybody just went, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> hmm. That's what we should have been doing all along. Um, uh, and a, an awful lot of very exciting stuff came out of that. You had W.D. Hamilton, Bill Hamilton, coming up with his concept of inclusive fitness as an ex explanation for the evolution of, well, sociality in, in, in bees, essentially. Uh, was what he'd been working on, um, <clears throat> and, and you know other people. Be the beginnings of sort of what was then called behavioural ecology, I suppose, still is optimal foraging theory, applying a lot of ideas from economics or the mathematics of economics to animal behaviour. So this is this is quite a a period of foment, really. Um, it, it it wasn't a sort of massive, um, uh, violent revolution as some might portray it. Um, uh, there were some skirmishes with with um, people in the social sciences, mainly on, uh, in the periphery somewhere. But most of us weren't troubled by that kind of thing. But it was just a sort of natural shift. Everybody just went, "Oh yeah, gosh, we we just need to re reset the gears here a bit." Um, and away we went, and that did kind of open up a completely new perspective. In fact, once people started to think in terms of what individuals were doing within a social system rather than what the emergent properties of the social system were like. Mm. You mentioned the uh, the word sociobiology earlier. I had the biographer of E.O. Wilson on the show about a year ago, and we were talking about the time at Harvard when he released that book and how you know, arguably he, he was one of the first people to be quote unquote attempted to be canceled uh, at the time of the publication of that book. And I've, I've had David Buss on the show. Uh, he was one of the first few guests there. And yeah, I'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about, you, you talked about the perspective shift just then, or, or the, how this was a new framework to think about human beings. And David said, when I interviewed him, that you know the application of evolutionary psychology is you know can be given not just to human nature but to all of the social sciences in general which he admitted was a bit of a bold claim i i'd love to 
to give you a, a platform to talk about um, how you think evolutionary psychology can be properly placed as really the way to attempt to explain human nature in general, as I understand it, through um, natural selection, evolutionary theory, and sexual selection. What what has um, really blown your mind, you know, over the years that you've uh, research the field to maybe rethink yourself and your own nature and and people in general. Uh, my goodness, uh, that's a very small question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 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 yes, uh, spe- speaking of, I mean, yes, I mean, just, the, just to go back a minute to the kind of sociobiological wars, as they, you know, they mm. were exclusively. Uh, confined uh, to um, probably Harvard. I'm not sure <laughs> I was going to say the United States, but I'm not even sure if the whole of the United States was engulfed by it. But this, mm. you know, certainly we weren't in Europe particularly. Um, most people just went, oh, well, there, were, you know, there was a bit of a yeah, kind of grumbling going on from the social sciences about this, which still continues to this day to some extent. But I... I um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how much E.O. Wilson was actually cancelled, as it were. It wasn't a case of cancelling. It was more a case of pouring a jug of water over his head. If I <laughs> That's right. The, the the iconic event that went down in 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 folk folklore. <laughs> um, well, it was quite funny, really, watching it from over here. <laughs> um, and, and you know, it's it's weird because. Everybody, I never actually met him, but everybody who knew him says he was one of the nicest people yeah. you could imagine. <laughs> uh, but still, um, and he liked his Beatles or whatever it was that he was really interested in. You know, just sort of this throwaway chapter at the, the end the of ants, sociobiology, yeah. which was this huge tome on animal behavior and animal ecology, and just a, a short chapter at the end saying, well, maybe we could apply some of these ideas within uh, the study of humans as well. But I mean, I would go. I would go further. It's not just a matter of um, uh, sort of evolutionary influences in, in anthropology, where they're fairly deep now. I mean, there's still a rift between the cultural anthropologists, as they would be known in America, um, and the kind of evolutionary or biological anthropologists uh, who take much more of a kind of <laughs> socio-biological line, if you like. Mm. Um, you know, that's still a deep uh, rift, I think, and I'm not sure that they actually ever talk to each other. Um, but but the the Im- impact potentially of evolutionary uh, ideas applies everywhere, I mean, to every field of, of the humanities and social sciences um, and, and within the life sciences in, in within the sciences. Um, you know, and I've argued this explicitly. You know, it, it applies in economics. You know, maybe we'd get better economics if mm-hmm. they understood what really uh, motivated people to to do things instead of just trying to chuck chuck lots of money at them. For mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. Um, it, it it applies in history and archaeology. You know, these these are uh, they call themselves humanities, but realistically, in the old Greek sense of science. Knowledge, uh, you know, they're proper sciences. They proceed by evidence and test hypotheses, and that's true in literature. If you look at literary criticism, and and you know, there are, and I've been involved in directly in projects uh, looking at um, 
the kind of evolutionary psychology of drama, for example, and storytelling, what, what is it that, that makes us keep going back to these tear-jerkers mm. <laughs> like Shakespearean tragedies, you know, mm. when you might think, uh, uh, you know, once is enough, but no, no, we keep coming back, paying good money to see, see it over and over again or read the book over and over again. Um, you know, and there are people like Lisa Sunshine who are applying some of these ideas directly um, in terms of uh, evolutionary sort of aspects of cognitive psychology very much to unpicking um, the structure of novels and how different authors have constructed their stories, as it were, and tell them. So, you know, there is no limit to, you know, as long as there are humans involved, that's their human minds, then evolutionary ideas m must apply. I mean, one has to be kind of, um, not, I was going to use the word cautious, but it, it's, that's not the right word. Uh, throw in a caveat, as it were, to, to, to just point out that for any species that has a big brain, humans, mm. but also all the primates and probably a lot of the other mammals and birds too, uh, you know, they're not genetic automations. <laughs> <laughs> they actually do think about what they're doing and, and you know, choose between alternative strategies. The question is, do their choices of behavior that they make um, reflect um, what is the optimal strategy uh, from an evolutionary point of view, or is it purely cultural, maybe? The answer is, no, it's not purely cultural. It's quite obviously and self-obviously uh, underpinned by... Um, evolutionary uh, mechanisms, as it were. Hmm. You must get this a lot at cocktail parties and from acquaintances and friends. And I have to imagine most of the people who are watching this or listening to this will have some understanding of the basics of evolutionary psychology. But for those who don't, how do you, you know, in as simple terms as you can, give an explanation for this framework of what it really means when approaching human nature and appro approaching people in general? Oh, okay. I, I guess the simple uh, answer is, is that um, evolution drives organisms uh, or drives the psychology of organisms as well as their, their anatomy, if you like, uh, towards strategies and solutions that are as best as it can manage to optimize the, well, number of great-grandchildren you produce. That's how evolution works. Um, now, the, the issue is, and one has to always to remember this, that, you know, uh, things like bacteria and insects and the like can probably be characterized as uh, genetically um, structured automatons you know the machinery and it's very simple machinery is is directly and uh, guided by genetic inheritance but once you start to get a brain as you do in in the sort of mammals and birds and leading up to humans you st start to free off the immediacy of decision making from the the background genetic processes involved so the whole point of having a big brain like we all do is to allow you, uh, as an individual organism, freedom to assess the costs and benefits of different actions. So the way I'd kind of describe it is what evolution provides you with 
is the kind of white lines on the football pitch, right? Mm. And the rule book, you know, <laughs> and it tells you the rules of how to play the game, but it doesn't tell you how to win the game. <laughs> you have mm. to figure that out. And you figure that out uh, by practice and a lot of experience. And that's because once you get into this kind of game, uh, the social world is so unpredictable that you could never produce an automaton that would um, function effectively in it. You could, you just cannot write it into the genetics of the organism. What the genes do is give you the, gives you the machinery and a bit of guidance along the way. So it's a bit like the white lines on the football pitch, um, uh, like the our predispositions to behave in certain kinds of way. But the, the the real issue in the end is how good you are at uh, making the right choices um, as you go along in life. Um, and you're free to, you know, make a hash of it if you want to make a hash of it. It's, it's nothing, nothing in evolution to say that you can't do that. It's just that, unfortunately, the way uh, uh, genetic evolution works, your genes will not be represented in, um, you know, a thousand years' time. But why should you care mm. Mm. as an individual? <laughs> Evolution might worry. Well, no, evolution doesn't worry about anything, does it? But um, you know, there's a there's difference between the strategic elements that underpins the evolutionary process and the tactical elements, which are us individuals trying to work out what's the best way to live our lives and get the most out of it with this kind of guidance built into the system, which says, well, actually, it's all about. Um, you know, uh, genetic descendants, as it were. But how you get there can be very, very complicated. You know, we've, we've historically we've always assumed since Darwin that this is all about producing babies. But in the 1950s, <laughs> you know, the uh, population ecologists had already worked out that that was only half the story. This is lax principle. You know, it's not about pumping babies out. It's about rearing adults mm. or as john maynard smith once famously said evolution is not interested in babies it's interested in grandchildren it's just that there is a problem getting to <laughs> you to grandchildren <laughs> they're called babies <laughs> i know when we were emailing about having you come on the show the one of the themes that i wanted to to go over with you is friends and you wrote a book on friends, which I've been reading over the last few days, and you just mentioned, you know, a, a lot of evolution is about um, trying to live, figuring out how to figure out the way to live one's best life. And you go into great lengths in the book about the importance of friends to human beings. And I, this is another basic and simple question, but. Why this subject? Why did friends for you uh, come up as a subject that was worthy of what I'm sure was many long hours and probably at least multiple years of, of your time and research? And I hasten to say a great deal of puzzlement. What on earth are these things called friends? <laughs> Shock, all right. <laughs> a discovery of a whole new world out there I didn't know existed. Um, uh, the, the answer is working on primates, because I think what working on primates inevitably reminds you about 
is just how important the social group actually is. So the sociobiological, the selfish gene revolution kind of made us throw away all the kind of group level effects and concentrate on what individuals are doing, which was fine. That was a useful antidote to some very bad evolutionary thinking Mm. um, that had gone on prior to that. Um, So it was a very healthy thing to do. But what it did a little bit was throw the bath bath out of with the baby <laughs> um uh for very good reasons i think because we didn't really understand how social groups sort of functioned or how important they were they were just seen as sort of random collections of bees around a honey pot i think but it's become clearer and clearer in the sort of 50 years or so since then uh that the very social species of mammals and birds, the group itself is part of the individual's evolutionary strategy and plays an extremely important role um, in uh, allowing them to cope with and overcome the vicissitudes of everyday life in this mm. grim place called Earth, which is forever throwing <laughs> badly pitched balls at you <laughs> when you least expect it. Um, and you have to deal with them. You know? So these are the sort of contextual serendipitous things that happen and uh, you know, could be, uh, you know, sort of uh, floods or famines or um heaven forfend climate warming or it could be your neighbors raiding you or predators turning up in large numbers any of these things that kind of threaten your ability to survive and reproduce successfully you know they're unpredictable they turn up out of the blue you have to be able to think on your feet and find a solution and and groups really turn out to be very, very important for primates and in the context of that very long complicated story um, which is why what, what I'm trying to put together in one of the books I'm working on now is sort of so people can see the whole picture. But the essence of it is that in order to create these kind of very deeply bonded, stable social groups, primates and a number of other species of birds and mammals, but nothing much beyond that, um, a few, I should hasten to say, species of um birds and mammals uh, by no means all, um, in effect had to invent friendships. So they had to create these bonded relationships to provide the kind of steel frame that holds these groups together through time. Mm. Um, and so this kind of, uh, it's, it, it's interesting actually, because I, I had never, all this socioecology stuff from the 60s, I had never thrown away it was sitting there on the back burner, I think. Um, uh, and sort of spend a certain amount of time sort of trying to think through it, uh, trying to understand what it was about the nature of these groups in primates in particular that was was important. Um, but but it, I, I, once we started working on humans, I think I mean, it, it really brought it home that um, there was something that really needed to be explained. And I suppose this had a lot to do with the um, social brain hypothesis that appeared out of the blue in the late 80s. Um, a number of people started talking about, you know, why do primates have such big brains? Well, it must have to do with the fact they live in very large, complicated societies. They need a big computer to manage all the relationships. Um, and I got very interested in that early on. Um, we produced some data to show that it was actually the case. 
um, uh, and uh, produced a <laughs> shed more data in the intervening 30 years. Um, and it just became obvious that a great deal of the machinery uh, of primate um, cognition, as well as uh, a great deal of their time, is devoted to actually trying to create and maintain coherent social groups. But it's done through person-to-person -person relationships. So, so these kind of friendships, if you like, provide the scaffold out of which a stable group emerges as an emergent property. It's kind of byproduct. Um, and then it's turned out that um, in the last decade and a half, huge quantities of uh, epidem epidemiological evidence has t come out of medicine primarily um, to show that the single best predictor of your psychological health and well-being, your physical health and well-being, even how long you're going to live into the future, is simply the number and quality of close friendships you have. Mm. Um, and then, you know, in the last decade, people have been finding exactly the same uh, results in primates, in uh, dolphins, <laughs> uh, any of these intensely social species. And so um the this 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 whole area of the emergent properties of groups as part and parcel of the evolutionary strategy that these primate species in particular and therefore humans the more so um have evolved seem to be becoming more and more important more and more important to understand how this worked and and, and how it's gone on so you know, since then, we've been able to show that the structure of these groups have very, very distinctive properties. It's a kind of layered structure with a, a fractal series is involved, um, sometimes known as a Dunbar graph. <laughs> thanks, thanks to a couple of Indian mathematicians. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and that, that these layers, uh, I mean, we just have huge quantities of data for this i mean we're talking about data sets a dozen data sets each of which is sort of in excess of a million a million um uh, people uh showing that these layers uh exist um the, the most famous of which is is the dunbar number of 150 which is turns out to be just one of a series of of layers these layers turn up in um uh uh, online multiplayer games <laughs> in the size of residential uh, caravan parks, trailer parks, mm. in, 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 at least in Germany, I don't know about the US, but uh, I mean, Germany, the, the, the size of distribution is just an absolute uh, map on it. It's the structure of all modern armies around the world. Mm. Um, uh, it, it appears in history. Um, uh, we <laughs> find it in all sorts of kind of bizarre contexts, really. And then finally, there they are, the same layers, same numbers, same structure in primate social groups as well. Orca social groups have them. Dolphin social groups have them. So all these intensely social species, something weird. And we've been able to show now uh, at least a bunch of uh, American mathematicians that I've been collaborating with. Uh, this is way beyond my mathematical competences. 
um, been able to show that these numbers are actually opt op op optimalities. They're, they're what physicists would call criticalities. They, they're points at which essentially information flow uh, is optimized in networks. So each of these numbers represents a kind of optimal point, a peak, if you like, with the big peak at 150 and these other numbers either side of it mm. um, are kind of like harmonics. So, you know, this is really very exciting um, stuff because we really are seriously getting a social physics um, together as a discipline. I mean, the, the physicists who work on social networks have been talking about social physics for a long time, but, I, but theirs is a kind of abstract form of, you know, behavior on artificial networks. You kind of go, mm, not sure if they're exactly what humans do, but now we have such a deep understanding of what's going on in the nature of uh, social, our, our social worlds, the social worlds we live in, and how these then map onto the way the world outside is organized, the, you know, the structure of organizations, as it were, um, that I think we can realistically speak of social physics here. Absolutely fascinating. And just to add on to that comment, there's a great graph in your book about friends, which I would encourage anyone to look, which gives an incredible visual about what you're talking about. And it's concentric circles. And it, it, I want to read out what what is detailed in that graph and then get sure. your comments on it. And th these are what are termed in the book circles of friendship. In the middle of the bullseye is intimates, something called intimates, which is 1.5 people close friends is second with five best friends is third with 15 good friends fourth 50 friends or dunbar's number which i'm sure is an annoying uh reference to you throughout your entire life Dun dunbar's number but friends being 150 acquaintances 500 and known names known names at 1500 um Maybe I'll just stop right there and give you any additional comments because you know you're you're famous for really the friends circle the the one fifty number. But I think if I just heard you correctly, the social physics you reference are related to all of these different tiers: the intimates, yeah. the close friends, the best friends, etc. Yeah, yeah. So so what you've just described is what has sort of been labeled a Dunbar graph. Mm. Right, so this is a fractal structure. It's it's a hierarchically inclusive structure. So each layer uh, includes all the people in the layer or layers within it, as it were. So the, mm. the bigger layers include the smaller layers. So your uh, your your fifteen, whatever it was you said, because I can never remember the, <laughs> the, the too too many names here. Um, but, uh, your best friends, as it were. That's uh, right. Yeah. Or, um, uh, includes your your five close friends and your five close friends includes your one and a half intimates. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's one more layer at the outside, and that's at five thousand, which we didn't discover. Okay, so we discovered these layers by looking at the structure of face-to-face um, -face contacts at uh, frequencies with which people called. Uh, so telephone databases. With uh, the one we particularly looked at was. Um, 20 it was a mobile phone provider 
that had 20% of the entire population of one very large European country. So we're talking about, I think it was 6 million customers and 6 billion phone calls over the mm. course of the year. It's huge, huge numbers. So looking at who's calling who, how often. Uh, we've looked at fa- the structure of Facebook posts, the structure of Twitter posts. Um, you get exactly the same picture, however you do it. Um, and that's what made it remarkable. So, um, you know, we'd picked up these numbers and then uh, the ones we knew about were 5, 15, 50, uh, 150, 500, 1500. Um, uh, so 1500 is sort of all the people whose faces you would recognize. So whether you like it or not, uh, uh, Donald Trump is in everybody's 1500, right? Because if you saw him walking down the street, you would know it was absolutely instantly. Of course, he'd look blankly at you and you sort of clapped him on the back and said, Donald, come and have a beer. Um, And probably the very large gentleman with a bulging right pocket uh, under his jacket next to him may have some words to say to you. But um, you know that you know, those sort of people that appear in the news are all part and partial of that 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 um, uh, layer. That's that turns out to be the size average size of tribes in small scale societies. But some psychophysicists who are interested in recognition of pictures for some obscure reason did attempted to do a study to see at which what point people kind of said, well, I've never seen that photograph before. And that turned out to be 5,000. And when I read this paper, I just went, wow, that's the bit we're missing. (laughs) And that is the last possible circle because everybody beyond that circle is a complete stranger. So Mm. somebody in that circle, you you know the face. You don't know who they can't remember who they are. You may never have known who they are, but you've seen that face before somewhere. And that seems to be about 5,000. Then the other end of the scale, I used to kind of joke when I was giving talks about this and say, look, this is a highly regular fractal series here. Each layer is three times the size of the layer inside it. If you count backwards uh, or downwards for 150, if you like, there's a layer missing, and that has to be at one and a half. And everybody would go, what do you mean? How can you have one and a half relationships? And I'd go, because it's an average for the population. That means half the population has one and the other half has two. Mm. And they'd go, oh. And they'd go, aha. So you're talking about uh, monogamy in women versus uh, polygamy in men. And I'm going, no, it's the other way around. Mm. (laughs) And that is that women have this very characteristic thing called a best friend forever or a bff as it's come to be known Hmm. um in addition to a romantic partner so there's quite good evidence you can really only have one proper romantic partner at a time it's very costly emotionally and and in time um you can have lots of sexual partners that you don't really care about necessarily but for a a deep romantic relationship it, it really does seem to be so costly that you only have one but what women also have is what i suppose would have been called a platonic friend mm. uh in, in in the olden times and um uh that's somebody who provides emotional support and advice and help and stuff like that 
Um, men don't. Um, they have a kind of best buddy that they might go and have a beer with. You know, they've probably known since they were at first day of primary school, something like that, right? But if you look at what they say, when you ask them, you know, uh, do you have a romantic partner? Yes, no. Do you have a best friend? Yes, no. They will only ever declare one at a time. So they either have one or the other, but not both. Somehow the, the kind of best friend gets kind of downgraded to, to the next layer. <laughs> it doesn't disappear altogether. It gets downgraded <laughs> to the next layer. Um, <clears throat> and, and so this is what the issue is. It has a lot to do, I think, with the fact that women's relationships are much more dyadic and focused. Um, it matters who you are as an individual, not what you are or what you do. Um, and therefore, their relationships are very intense with each other, their friendships, um, mm. whereas men live in a more club-like world, where which is much more anonymous. So it doesn't really matter at all who you are as an individual. What matters is, are you in my club? Now, the definition, the club is small. It's only four or five people. Um, uh, if you... Um, uh, the definition can be extremely casual. You know, it's the four or five guys that go and have a beer on a Friday night together once in a while. Mm. You know, and the definition of club membership, the criteria of club membership is can you get a glass of beer from the table to your mouth without spilling it? If you can, you're in the club. <laughs> or there is the um, well-known club that many husbands belong to, which is the club that consists of the husbands of my wife's girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> which is a sort of a, a group that kind of emerged out of the social arrangements that the women make. And then the guys kind of after, you know, them, they go along to various social things that the, 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 the wives get together and then uh, the wives and girlfriends as it were. And then, um, you know, after sheepishly standing around the corner of the room, pretending to sip their glass of wine, they eventually, Say something to each other, and 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 gradually that becomes well. Why don't we go and have a, you know, beer together or something like that? So you know, usually there's some activity involved. You know, it might be a group that goes hiking. It might be a group that you know plays five aside soccer, every, you know, Friday evenings or something like that, or mm. uh, mountain climbing or kayaking or you know, just sitting around having a beer. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a very much an activity-based thing, whereas these women's friendships are much more dyadic, uh, much more conversation-based. Um, that's what our data show. And so we have a very nice demonstration of this from Facebook profile pictures, which we looked at many thousands of, <laughs> hundreds, tens of thousands of once, um, which showed that uh, if there were only two people, and we, we'll we'll throw out, um, you know, sort of me and my mum or me and my uh, baby photographs. So two people the same age. If there's only two in it, it's very likely a a a, a, a female uh, page, and there's a fifty fifty chance that the other person is male, presumably the romantic partner. Uh, fifty fifty, it's female. And uh, although some of those might be romantic partners, um, a good proportion are my best friend forever. Mm. Um, so important are those in their lives. If there's four people in the picture, it is never a girl's uh, uh, um, page. It is always a boy's page, and it's four guys. 
and they're sitting on the top of the mountain looking down over Machu Picchu or they're crowded in a gold mouth or they're uh, you know, sort of um, pulling their kayaks together or on the lake or, or whatever it may be, it's that kind of thing. Um, so this is really big difference in the way the dynamics, the internal dynamics of, of how um, friendships work. And I hasten to say, in addition, that that, that these so, – okay, so that's why you – this is a long roundabout explanation of why you get the one hop. But I should say that right the way through these layers – it's a 50-50 division between fa extended family and friends. So for most, out to the 150, that's the absolute limit. You, there are very, very rarely family members out beyond 150. Um, in the inner two layers, uh, 5 and 15, they're exactly 50-50 um, family and friends. In the 50 layer, you tend to get more friends and fewer family. And in the 150, you tend to get more extended family. Now, your extended family is taking you out to kind of cousins, second cousins. But people who have large extended families, um, and, you know, in all societies, including ours, you know, some people do. They just happen to come from a lineage which has had sort of 10 or 12 kids. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, 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 um, uh, then very often well, what you'll find is they have very few friends. I, I, I don't know how many times people have come up and said that to me. You know, um, you know I, I, I come from you know, a very, very big family. I've got 40 first cousins. This is not entirely that rare. Um, it takes me all my time to get around them, you know, to, 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 to check up on, on them and so on. Uh, I don't have time to have friends, you know, whereas my spouse, you know, comes from a very small family and has uh, <laughs> no family and lots of friends. <laughs> it's very confusing for me. So, you know, these kind of things pop up constantly. Um, uh, and it never ceases to surprise me how often you hear about these things, just sort of you know, proof of the pudding, if you like. Um, but it, in what this is seems to be uh, pitched out of is the fact that that 150 is the limit for all kinship naming practices all around the world. There are only eight different kinship naming systems. Um, I keep forgetting which English is. I think it's Hawaiian or something obscure like that. But there are various other ones, Iroquois and uh, um, uh, so on and so forth. There are only eight of them. Uh, they're all pretty much the same, essentially, but they kind of do mirror images of each other in certain places that are in themselves quite interesting. Um, but the essence of them is they only go out to about second cousins there are there are no na kinship naming systems in the world there's no society in the world that has a name for anywhere anybody further out than that mm. um and it turns out that if you figure out the number of descendants from a a, a, a sort of great great grandparental pair who who um uh, married if you like and had children who then had children who then had children at the rates at which they do in uh, undergatherer type societies where you know there's fairly high death rates among children but also you know no contraception or no formal contraception so they tend to have large numbers of children 
then 150 is very, very close indeed to the number of living descendants in the three living generations mm. for um, uh, a pair who are the great, great grandparents of all the living children generation. Mm. Right. And, and, you know, that's about, about as far as we need to go in terms of kinship. We don't need to worry about sort of people beyond that. What we do is we kind of stick labels on them, you know, in the form of funny haircuts or moustaches or how you have a beard or the beading you have on your parker or mm. uh, whatever it may be. And things like dialect uh, so that we can recognize who belongs to our tribe for example. Mm. So, you know, we have lots and lots of those. Um, and this fed back into, <laughs> it all gets very complicated because it's all so interrelated. But, you know, once we realized that, we began to appreciate that, um, in fact, the these things we use, cues we use to identify members of our tribe of about 1,500 people are in fact the um, same mechanisms we use in identifying friendship. So this is what we call the seven pillars of friendship. So the seven dimensions of friendship, all of them cultural, uh, none of them are biological, um, which kind of identify the community, the, in a sense, the language community you come from. So there are things like the language you speak, um, or, or if you come from a very big language, it still works with us. Come, you know, even with sort of something like English, which you know, a billion people <laughs> have as their first language or whatever it, it's supposed to be, you know, still uh, we worry about, you know, is, is, is that a Greenwich Village accent I hear from New York? <laughs> <laughs> or is it a Harlem one? You know, uh, you know we, we, we make these very fine distinctions and it's these social linguists figured out, well, way back in the... Um, uh, 80s, I think it was, that um, you could place a native English speaker within Britain um, uh, to within 25 miles of where they were born the moment they opened their mouth, mm. right? From the words they use, the uh, way they pronounce words, the grammatical structures they have. Uh, it's a very, very small scale. And that turns out to be, actually, if you think about it, about the size of the the the, the uh, ranging area of a, a tribe and hunter-gatherer societies. Um, so that's one of them. There's things like where you where you grew up, uh, um, your hobbies and interests, your career trajectory. Um, you know, this is why lawyers have mainly lawyers as friends. You know, once mm -hmm. upon a time, unkindly, clearly, we all thought it was because nobody else would speak to lawyers. But <laughs> but no, it turns out to be true medical folk it turns out to be true of academics it turns out to be true of journalists it turns out to be true of almost every walk of life uh plumbers electricians whatever you know you gravitate towards people who kind of work in the same do the same kind of job as you because you've got something to talk to them about you've got common interests you know mm. funny stories to tell about you know cases you've done or you know uh, rewiring jobs you've had to do and uh, all these kind of things. So so it, your career, as it were, uh, provides one of those. And then there are things like your worldview, which is a kind of composite of your religious, moral, and political views, um, your hobbies and interests, and then the two interesting ones, which are your sense of humor and your musical tastes. Mm -hmm. 
And um, these these turn out to be very powerful influences on our choice of friendships. So our friends, even our preferred family members, share more of the seven pillars with us than our less preferred ones. So how, how many pillars you share with somebody places them in one of those circles. And we've recently shown... <laughs> That uh, And I think this explains why what happens when we meet new people, we devote an awful lot of time to them. You know, we keep ringing them up, trying to uh, make arrangements to, to meet them. What we're doing is checking out where they lie. And then once we've kind of figured out, oh, they're a, they're a sixer or, you know, or they're a threer, or maybe they're mm. just a oneer, it, it, it kind of, we, we anchor back to the kind of rate of contact, which is appropriate for the circle that they'll then fall in. So we published a paper um, last year, uh, which was based on telephone contacts, so cell phone contacts uh, from three different countries, the US, Britain, and Italy. Um, and we showed that we could predict effectively which layer of friendship so for for people who are new friends so this this number appears for the first time out of nowhere mm. they've never called mm. it before we can predict which layer they'll they'll sit in and how long the friendship will last be before they stop calling them uh on the basis of the frequency of calls in the first month and that appears to be them go checking up, you know, let's go out, let's go out, you know, let's do this, let's do that. And you kind of go, right, um, I think we'll put them, we'll downgrade them to, <laughs> to, to the 150 layer. We only have to see them once in a while. <laughs> this to me, it seems like such a massive step forward in our understanding of of humans and human social dynamics. And you, you go into great detail in the book in... Um, providing data about how universal these categories seem to be throughout the world and that that this really is applicable seemingly with some slight variation uh around the world and i want to go over again just for the listeners and the viewers the categories to have as a framework for circles of friendship intimates 1.5 close friends 5 best friends 15 Good friends, 50. Friends, 150. Acquaintances, 500. Known names, 1,500. And I know we're getting close to the end of our conversation. And you know, so much of your book and so much of the reason why I do these interviews is for, uh, you know, just for my own curiosity, but also to try to help you know people get great knowledge. You talked earlier about, and you go into this in the book, about how powerfully predictive having close friends are for your immune health, your health in general, your sense of well-being. And you know, uh, this may be a, a decent place to close, but we you know, if you you talk about this in the book about how once in a lifetime activities like funerals and deaths, funerals and marriages are typically the 150 range where people the good where the uh, the friends come a weekend barbecue is given as an example for for good friends the 50 range to appear when you think about human flourishing, and I interviewed Mark Scholes about a year ago, who led the uh, and co-wrote the book about uh, the Harvard happiness study that was a longitudinal study of 80 years. Mm -hmm. And the big takeaway from all of that research was the most important thing to a flourishing life is close, uh, connected friendships, relationships. And 
is it your your view that it's it's really the the inner circles the the lack of a an intimate a lack of a close friend maybe the lack of a best friend so going from roughly 1 to mm-hmm. 15 mm-hmm. that if people don't have that a lot of people have friends that they see yes. you know once a year or once every couple yep. years that it's really the inner circle in your judgment that that matters so much maybe the inner inner two or three i don't want to put words in your mouth but i'd love to give you an opportunity to talk about that yeah it, 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 all these huge epidemiological studies, like the Harvard one you just mentioned, but but many others in it, um, that are, are, are about actual you know uh, susceptibility to diseases. The one I like is uh, a, a um, uh, meta-analysis of I think it was 148 heart attack uh, studies. <laughs> you can't argue about that. The outcome, you know, if you can, you the trouble with these kind of standard sociological and psychological uh, surveys. You know, are you happy today? You know, well, yeah, yeah, mm. sure. Am I as happy as I was <laughs> yesterday? It's not clear. That's fine. You know, I mean, we kind of cope with that and the error variance, as they say. But, you know, when your measure is how long did you survive after your first heart attack? Did you make it to 12 months? You can't argue with that. You either you did or you didn't. So I think it's just a great study. And what they show is exactly what everybody else shows. It's it's this inner core of five best friends, what we now call the shoulders to cry on friends mm. uh, for obvious reasons. Um, they seem to provide the the, the kind of support that both is, you know, it gets you out of depression better than any, any pills mm. and gets allows you to overcome serious uh, um, uh, medical diseases um, better. I mean, you know, these are statistical. Just having having friends is not going to help you live forever, I'm afraid. Mm. You know, <laughs> you can't legislate for that. But statistically, you will you definitely do better much better um and and what's interesting and you can well what's interesting is how that actually works so it's about i think what what those close friends do and usually that group of five two of them will be family members two of them will be kind of friends as it were your best best friends and then kind of an odd one to make it up you know they do two things to you they have this obligation and commitment to you that they will turn up with a bowl of chicken soup when you're laid out with some dread disease and, you know, kind of do jobs for you of that kind. As I sometimes put it, you know, they are the only ones who, when you go around and bang on their door and say, my world has fallen apart, I need some help, will put the baby down and come and help you. Mm. Uh, Anybody else will say, actually, I'm just dealing with the baby right now, but I'll come around tomorrow. Tomorrow's too late. Mm. (laughs) But for somebody to be willing to do that, the relationship has to be really deeply structured and built, and that takes time. And we devote 40% of our total social, available social time to those five people. That's about half an hour a week each, something of that. Uh, 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 it's more than that, it's about half an hour a day, isn't it? Um, we those relationships won't work like that unless you invest uh, a lot of time and effort in them. Of course, it has to be reciprocal. Um, but it turns out that what makes that work is what you do with them. So these are all our kind of standard social interactions. So it's all the things like laughing and singing and dancing and eating together and uh, telling stories together. 
all of these trigger the endorphin system in the brain, which is part of the brain's pain management system. And that creates this very intense form of bonding. And also because it's an opioid, not an opiate of the kind that, you know, uh, are causing so many problems for us, um, but they're sort of chemically related, but we don't get addicted to, to endorphins. Um, uh, they are, they give you this same uplift, a sense of peace and, you know, the cares of the world are dropping off your shoulder and, warmth and coziness it's not a happy drug it's just a, a a piece of the world kind of drug if you like and that creates a center bonding and so it's a an absolutely incredible antidepressant you know and you don't have to pay for it <laughs> all you have to do is go and you know spend a bit of time with your friends um but so you can see how it get you you get this kind of psychological well-being effect but it turns out that the endorphins, one of the byproducts of the endorphins, uh, brains, the brain pumping out endorphins in any situations is to activate the um, natural killer cells and the white uh, blood cell system, the immune system. Um, and the natural killer cells target in particular, um, we think anyway, um, viruses generically and some cancers um, have conceivably other stuff but those are the those are the two things that have been pointed out so now you can see a reason why it should have a physical health consequence directly this is a kind of byproduct um the real real kind of evolutionary purpose if you like is very much the the building of friendship um you know and of course you know making you happy uh, and this is the interesting thing about endorphins. Everybody get, batters on about oxytocin as being the sort of social hormone. The answer is no. <laughs> it's quite good for some things, but it's not very good for building uh, friendships. Um, it's very good for romantic relationships and 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 you know, relationships with your children and babies, but it's not particularly useful for building uh, friendships because the difference is. With oxytocin, you either have the right allele for oxytocin and do lots of it, and you're very, very kind to everybody then. Mm. But endorphins allow you to make other people kind to you. Mm. So this is rather more important. So by doing all this stuff like laughing together, we trigger endorphin surges in both parties. And, you know, uh, it, it's fun for all of us. And if you can't do that, um, you know, you're not going to have a friendship, I'm afraid in some form i mean you can do it by telling incredibly tragic stories to each other although there's probably a limit to which most people are going to sit and listen to your tragic stories night and day but you know any of these things like eating together singing and dancing laughing stroking patting all the kinds of things we do with our closer friends and family um kick the endorphin system in and, and make it pleasurable for both parties. So, you know, um, and which is back to homophily again. We like mm. people who are similar to us, ourselves as well, who like the same kinds of things. So you've got this mechanism which underpins um, social bonding, which is goes back to primates. It's, it's derivative of grooming in primates. Um, and, uh, you know, we've exaggerated it and exploited it, as it were, in cultural terms and ways that trigger the same mechanism. But it turns out that, that this mechanism is hugely beneficial for our psychological well-being as well as our physical well-being, has dramatic impacts.
So yes, you know, um, go out and, 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 and make a make a friend. But you know, really, um, you have to invest a lot of time and effort, which means you you have to be rather tolerant mm. of the other person's foibles. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And this is, we- in the end, this is why you get homophily. You know, extroverts prefer intro- extroverts as friends. Introverts prefer introverts, and you can see why. And same with the romantic partners really because you know there you are five, six o'clock on saturday evening sitting on the sofa at home what should we do tonight you know two extroverts they want to go clubbing fine this is nirvana two introverts they want to sit in with a tv dinner and w- watch the film that's another kind of nirvana but one an extrovert and introvert together one wants to go out the other wants to sit in this is you know <laughs> an insoluble problem because whoever whoever agrees to go with the other one is going to feel miffed <laughs> mm. <laughs> they're not getting what they want to do they're just having to put up with <laughs> with the other person so you know you can see these kind of stresses make all kinds of relationships whether it's romantic relationships or friendships or even family relationships difficult and you can see why we have these very strong preferences for people who are like ourselves yeah. Robin, this stuff is just so damn interesting. And I, I maybe we could do this again. I have so many other subjects and, and notes I'd love to go over with you, but um, we never I got know, past question one. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. It's a, a signal of a good conversation uh, and, a, and a brilliant mind. I, I love the social physics idea. And I think you've made groundbreaking uh, observations about people and you know, some of these things are just so simple for recommendations. As you said, it's 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 free to do these things. And I think we often uh, forget just how important these sort of investments really are for for us just in in general for living a flourishing life. And so, um, you know, maybe we can talk again at some point in the future. But I I, I so enjoyed this and I love your uh, your research and your contributions. Um, thank you so much for for taking the time. I, I really hope we get to talk at some point again in the future. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.